Welcome to the Elk Talk Podcast with Randy Newberg and Corey Jacobson. Presented by the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. The goal is what little you and I know about elk hunting, we share with people. I've got an elk building, it's like 120 yards away, what do I do? First off, the thought would never cross my mind when an elk being 120 yards away to call anybody <laughs> on a cell phone. <laughs> All elk. All the time. Only elk. Only elk. Well, it's us having conversations. So we usually go down some rabbit holes. But if you hunt with Corey Jacobson, you will find the landscape is full of rabbit holes. We're just going to make this up as we go. And you look at it like, oh, that's a target rich environment. But if you're trying to single one out, a solo target there is much easier to go into than a, a big group. We record everything, so there's no BS and no lying, no faking it with us. <laughs> Did we hit the record I button? I forgot to hit the record <laughs> button. If you want to know something about elk hunting, this probably isn't the podcast to listen to. <laughs> Should we give them a list of all the other podcasts wow. where they might learn something? <laughs> The Elk Talk Podcast is brought to you by the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, ensuring the future of elk, other wildlife, their habitat, and our hunting heritage. To become a member, go to rmef.org. The Elk Talk Podcast is also brought to you by Mountain Ops, making outdoor energy and performance nutrition to make you a stronger and healthier elk hunter. They have a full line of hunting-related supplements, including meal replacement shakes, multivitamins, pre-workout fuel, and post-workout recovery, and my favorite, their new performance protein bars that, by the way, are packed with 270 calories and 20 grams of protein, but contain less than 6 grams of sugar. Visit mountainops.com to learn more and to order, and be sure to use the promo code ELKTALK to save on your next order. The podcast is also brought to you by Gerber. Uh, go to gerbergear.com and learn about the knives, the vital, the big game vital, the Gator Premium, all the things that we use when we're out in the woods, and not just knives, but also some really cool multi-tools that they have. And we have a promo code for Gerber as well. Just use the code ELKTALK to save 20% on your orders at gerbergear.com. And we are also brought to you by Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls. And Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls is the original designer and inventor of the pallet plate diaphragm that's completely changed the way elk calls are made and used. And to find out more and to order your elk calls, go to RockyMountainHuntingCalls.com or BuglingBull.com and use promo code ELKTALK and you're going to save 15% on all of your elk calls and elk call accessories. The Elk Talk Podcast is also brought to you by GoHunt.com. Uh, go to GoHunt.com and sign up for the Insider. The Insider is changing how hunts and hunting information are found. No doubt about that. Use promo code ELKTALK, and when you do, when you sign up for the Insider, you're going to get $50 of store credit, mad money, in their gear shop. Lastly, the University of Elk Hunting online course is a proud partner of the Elk Talk podcast. And within the University of Elk Hunting online course, you're going to find nearly 60 chapters organized in 17 modules of elk hunting instruction aimed at making you a more successful elk hunter. From planning and e-scouting to calling strategies and packing 
every imaginable elk hunting topic is included in the online course. And regardless of your previous elk hunting experience or success, I'm confident the University of Elk Hunting online course will make you a more confident, more successful elk hunter. Just visit elk101.com and use the promo code ELKTALK to save 20% when you sign up for a membership to the University of Elk Hunting online course. And with that, Corey, we are ready to get into it. Let's jump into it. All right, Corey, this is the podcast I've been waiting to record since I heard that you survived and got home from Alaska. <laughs> well, let's uh, let's define survival. We did get home, but uh, <laughs> there, there's definitely some healing that needs to take place. Oh, my gosh. What an adventure. I can't even – so that's what – if you don't mind – because this is like the most adventurous elk hunt I can think of. I, I mean, in every respect. So, do you mind just making this podcast the story of, of this <laughs> Alaska elk hunt? And I'll ask more questions and uh, as we go, because I got a, a million questions in my mind. And people might think we've rehearsed this, but I specifically told you I don't want to talk to you until we have the mics on. I know. I tried to tried texting. You're like, stop. I don't want no more than that one picture. I don't want to hear or see anything about it. So uh, yeah, we can. Uh, I can. I can use this as a therapy session, maybe, and <laughs> <laughs> help me get over some of the things that are still bothering me about the hunt. So really, oh, well, I, I guess the question is. Was it one of those hunts where you say, "Oh, I can't wait to go to do it, go and do it again," or once is enough? As of right now, I would, for no amount of money, ever go back. <laughs> that, that may change. It may be like childbirth, where you kind of forget about the pain and and all of that. But as of right now. Uh, the tops of my toes and the heels of my feet and the the chafing on the lower half of my body and all of that is saying not a chance. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So. Yeah. What? 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 Where do we what? start? Yeah. <laughs> Just walk us through wherever you want. Interject what went right, what went wrong. Is 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 it? I, I tell a lot of people this. Because I've I've been lucky to have family that lives up there in Southeast Alaska, and I spent a lot of time up there. I tell people, it's like a lot of things in life. I can explain to you how thick and ugly and nasty it is, but that's not going to do you any good. You have to go and experience it to understand how bad it is. Would we that said be a that, correct statement? Yeah, we said that several times on several different platforms. I mean... It's absolutely the most stunning, beautiful place I have probably ever been. Yeah. Um, but pictures won't do it justice. You can't, you know, it's, yeah, there's some pretty pictures and we got phenomenal photos and video, but it still doesn't do it justice. Um, the, the vastness of it and how big it is, we glassed up some elk on opening day and we were already four hours from camp and we're looking at them going, it's probably another three miles over there. The amount of time it took us to get there, you look at it and, and straight line, it's great. And we're up above timberlands. So we aren't even dealing with timber and stuff at this point. This is just yeah. up in the, the upper alpine tundra. But you would walk and you'd look and there's a hillside in front of you 300 yards away. There are two crevices between you and that hillside 
that take mm-hmm. you 45 minutes to get down and back up the other side of one of them. Yeah. And you just, you, you don't see it and you can't explain that and the pictures don't show it. Um, the steepness, the, mm-hmm. you just, I, I slipped twice with crampons on with, uh, with weight on my back, with health meat on my back. And the next thing to hit after my crampons came unattached from the ground was my rain gear on the wet grass. Oh, and these, these avalanche shoots are straight down for a thousand yeah. yards. Right. And I would get sliding, you know, I'd hit and slide and your hands out there, there's nothing to grab onto. Trekking poles aren't, you can't dig them in. No. So all you're relying on is trying to get your feet underneath you and dig those crampons in again. And the one time I went probably 20 or 30 yards at a full luge speed down this yeah. hill before I got dug in. And if I'd have went another 20 yards, we wouldn't be sitting here having this conversation Talking. right now. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's just, I mean, it's so incredibly steep. You just look at it and think, I don't even know if it's possible to walk up or down that. <laughs> but we have to. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You have no choice. The Those big crevasses, they, they call it karst. It's... Uh, like limestone where the obviously it rains up there all the time it creates these deep cut channels that sometimes are hidden by vegetation and you don't know if they're a thousand feet deep or 10 feet deep yeah when you slide into one of them and the last time we did sitka blacktail up there marcus being the proverbial i mean just the consummate company guy He's the last guy across this little narrow ledge. So the rest of us have kind of packed it down. And I, I'm like, you want me to take your camera? No, I got it. So he's got this big FS7 camera loaded down with batteries. <laughs> and he slips and he disappears. And I'm in panic mode. I'm like, oh, no, he's going to die. And we hear him clankety bang. Oh, and a few cuss words. And I'm like, Marcus, you okay? Yeah, I split my head open, but I think I'm okay. (laughs) So we found a way to shimmy down. He had fallen about 20 feet. But he comes out of there, blood dripping off the side of his head above his eye. But the camera's okay. (laughs) I'm like, Marcus, I don't care about that damn camera. I'm worried about you. And we get him out of there. He just takes his shirt sleeve and applies a bunch of pressure. After about 10 minutes, big, you know, goose egg purple knot there. Oh, I'll be okay. I'm like, never again do you cross one of those without having both hands available to you. I can't imagine doing it with, you know, 60, 80, 100 pounds of elk meat on my back. I wouldn't. I just wouldn't do it. It it just, that scares me hearing you talk about that. Yeah, well, we'll uh, as we get into the packing portion of the story, I'll, I'll elaborate a little more. Uh, but yeah, it's so just you, you, John, and Donnie. Yep. So John, cameraman John, and Donnie and I both drew tags, and we, uh, you know, it's I kind of blame you because. I don't remember ever saying that Alaska was my dream elk hunt, but you said that I did. And so then I almost felt obligated to to go and hunt it because if it's a dream hunt, I mean, why not? 
I, well, I really, I, I can't I, imagine saying that. Maybe it's just after I, the fact. <laughs> I think you're piv- you're pivoting that story a little bit. I didn't I didn't say that you called it your dream hunt. I said it's the last place in the world that I'd ever go want to go elk hunting, and I started explaining how terrible the terrain is, and you said something to the effect of, "Well, that sounds like it could be fun." <laughs> I think is how that discussion went. I'm and I had sure. I had no idea you were going to apply for that tag. And then when you drew it, I'm like, I think time for a sanity check for you, Mr. Jacobson. Yeah. The, uh, the more that I looked into the logistics of the hunt, um, the more concerned I became. There was only yeah. one air transporter that would even fly to that area. Mm-hmm. Um, there's only two access points on the entire island by air. You know, you can take a boat and right. go in from sea level there and fight the the rainforest mm-hmm. for 3,500 vertical feet. Yeah. Uh, but looking at it, we thought, okay, we've got it. We've got to go in by air to gain some of the elevation and to decrease some of the elevation when we pack. Uh, but with only two access points, as I start, you know, I talked to biologists, I talked to people who had hunted it. There's fewer than 200 elk on the entire island. Mm-hmm. And, and this is a big island. This, this isn't like big. you're getting dropped off on a 300-acre island. Yeah, this, this isn't Gilligan's Island. This is <laughs> <laughs> this is a, a big volcano-looking, carved-by-a-glacier island. And I talked to the biologist two weeks before the hunt, and said, okay, here's kind of my plan. You know, am I, am I on the right path? And he's like, that's exactly what I would do, but I've flown the island several times this summer, and I haven't seen a single elk. Ooh. And he said, I hope that you have a good experience because I'd love to pick your brain when you get back because we have no way of, of doing any studies on them. I mean, these elk are just so elusive, and there's so few of them, and the success rate is 2% on on that island for the hunts and we just we can't get any data and so anyways you know there were a lot of things that had me concerned uh the biggest i think was once we got our gear packed and i waited i had 94 pounds of gear Uh and i looked through every piece of gear i had can i shave ounces anywhere is there anything i absolutely don't need and I shaved off maybe two pounds, so I was still in the, the low 90s. And yeah. we had initially thought we're going to take one trip from the lake hiking mm-hmm. up to where we're going to put our base camp. And we realized that's just impossible. So yeah. we ended up with you know, 45, 50-pound packs twice going up there. Oh, um, no. And, and the, the beautiful thing was we had absolutely clear blue skies, which in Alaska, that's rare. Yeah, in, in that sep- part of Alaska, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and in September, it's it's almost unheard of. Yeah. And so flying in, we actually made a little loop around the, the lake we're flying into, and we spotted a herd of elk from the air. Whoa. So that was, you know, that that's number one huge, huge advantage. We, we know yeah. there's elk there, and we've seen them. Uh, what we didn't realize was exactly how far away they were. And we didn't know if there were any bulls there. We, you know, didn't get that good of a look, but we could see there was a herd of about twenty elk, and so we assumed there had to be a bull somewhere. 
Mm-hmm. So we got dropped off in the lake, and everything was good. We got out. Everything's dry. I didn't even put on rain gear. I hiked the first load up to camp in just a base layer shirt and, and my pants. Whoa. And boots didn't get wet. I didn't wear gaiters. You know, it was very unusual circumstances. Um, there's no trails. There's, yeah. you know, we, we found a couple of game trails that were able to weave through a couple of cliffs and found how the, the animals got around it. Uh, but we got up and, and found a place where we thought this is where we want to set up camp. There's water everywhere, so we were we were in a good spot there. Got our tent set up, and then we returned back to the lake for our second trip. Got that, made it back up to camp right at dark with uh, the rest of our gear. But before we went back down for the second trip, me being uh, unable to not blow a bugle into new country... I bugled off the backside of the ridge from camp, and immediately, about three or four hundred yards away, a bull answered. Whoa! And this is a separate, separate group of elk than what we saw from the air. So now I'm like, okay, there are there are elk here. There are huntable populations of elk. We're going to be okay. Yeah. So I went quiet. You know, one bugle he answered, and I went quiet. We hiked down the mountain. We came back right at dark. I said, I'm just going throw a couple cow calls and see if he's still there and see if anything else will answer. And I cow called in about 400 yards in the opposite direction, a bull answered, and it sounded like a completely different bull, um, sounded mean, just a big old growl. And so we <laughs> quietly went back to the tents and, you know, all sorts of excited for the next day. There's two bulls bugling 40 yards from our tents that, you know, we we're going to be on yeah. in the morning. So got up the next morning, hiked up there. It's opening day. And bugled and bugled and bugled nothing. So we decided to start oh, hiking. No. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Typical, you know, anticipation the night before season and then reality sets yeah. in. So <laughs> we uh we hiked uh we I'm thinking we I think we left at like five forty five and I remember it was twelve twelve. We had hiked pretty much straight. Wow. You know, we hadn't done any sitting down, eating lunch Sick. or anything like that. Six and a half hours. Uh, 5.30 to 12, so six. Yeah, I guess it was. I was going to say no, not that long, but... Um, yeah, Time flies when you're having fun. Oh, man, it does. <laughs> and so I had set out. I wore a base layer shirt, and I had on my puffy vest. Uh, the weather was supposed to be beautiful, sunny all day, that day and the next day. So I didn't take any rain gear. I didn't take Uh-oh. any crampons. I didn't take any gaiters. Uh, I took enough food for the day. So we get to this point at 12.12, and we're glassing, and we can see a little saddle about two and a half or three miles as a crow flies across from us. And mm-hmm. it's the saddle that we're pretty sure we had seen the elk in from the air. And I'm looking at it going, there's no physical possible way to day hunt from where we're camped and, and get over there and have a chance at killing an elk and getting back. But we happened oh, to glass two cows bedded in this saddle, and we could just see their heads and their ears silhouetted there. And as we're looking at them, I look up to the left, and here come antlers up over the, the skyline two and a half miles away. I thought, if I can see antlers from here, it's got to be a decent bull. Yeah. And so I'm looking at it going, okay, in my mind, 
we've got to move camp, which is going to suck because we've got to make two trips. It's six and a half hours here, which we could do much less just straight line hiking. Uh, But it's a long way. And I'm looking at Donnie and Donnie's moving pretty slow. So Donnie, two weeks before we leave, tests positive for COVID. And he uh, has to isolate. And the day that we can fly to Alaska, he's cleared to come out of isolation. So he feels good. You know, he had a couple rough days, uh, headache and some different things, but by now he's, mm-hmm. you know, he says he feels back to normal. So, but he's looking a little peaked. He's looking like, yeah, Donnie might, you know, need a nap on the mountain today. <laughs> and I'm, I'm hesitant to say anything. And then cameraman John says, well, we don't really have any other options. We don't have a choice. We're here. Let's go. Now, usually cameramen are supposed to be the ones that say, hey, you sure you want to go over there? Exactly. You know, we have to we have to beg them. He didn't even give us an option. He loaded up his pack and he's like, we're going. That's what we came here to do. And we've got good weather. We've we've got to go. So oh, man. we uh, we crossed two of these crevices that were cut out by a glacier that were just insanely deep and steep. Straight down, straight up, straight down, straight up. And then we hit a, a pretty good little path. I mean, we still had several of those crevices we had to cross over and we had to navigate a couple glaciers. You know, there's still snow there and mm-hmm. all that, but it's it's doable and we're making good time. And so about three o'clock, we get to a point and I step out around a little knob and I glass and I'm like, okay, don't move. There's elk bedded facing us on a knob in front of us. And I didn't know if they were 200 yards, 600 yards. I just saw them through the binoculars and... Mm-hmm. So I slipped up and got a look, and I'm like, okay, I can see about eight cows. It has to be the herd we saw. You know, there's more of them dispersed, I'm sure, through the brush there. But So I moved around, left everything there. Donnie falls asleep there. I move around the hillside <laughs> and uh, leave my pack, and I go down. And I'm like, okay, I, can, I see a place we can make up some ground. I can't see the elk. I think we can get within 100 or 200 yards of them uh, before we start getting exposed again. So that's our plan. So... I go and wake Donnie up, John's on board, we grab our packs and we head down. Well, we get to a point probably 300, maybe 400 yards away from the elk, and all of a sudden I see antlers. And the bull is is standing in a little saddle, and you can tell he's rutting, you know, he's, he's raking, he's kind of pushing a cow back and forth. Mm-hmm. And we're in a good little clump of brush, and between us and the elk, it's wide open, we're exposed. So I thought... I'm just going to see if he'll answer a call. You know, I don't even know if he'll answer. I don't know how responsive they are. (laughs) Are these elk for real? (laughs) Yeah. So I cow call and he answers immediately and kind of turns our direction, walks 10 or so steps our direction is looking where we're at. And so I thought, well, I'll bugle at him. So I bugle. He doesn't even hesitate. He leaves his cows and comes on a string towards us. Whoa. And we're kind of, I mean, we're in a decent setup. It wouldn't have been my first choice, but we've got some cover and, and we can make it work. So we pop out through the trees, the little brush there. I get on the open side of it, set up in front of it. Donnie stays back to call. And what I didn't realize is there's a glacier between us and the elk and a you know pretty good oh. ravine and a whole bunch of packed snow. And this bull comes to 150 yards, which is about as close as he can get without dropping into the ravine and, and coming up on our side. And he puts on a show. 
He bugles. Mm -hmm. He rakes the ground. He finds the only patch of brush there and thrashes it, and he bugles some more. And every time we make a noise, he bugles. But he wouldn't come across. Yeah. And so he turns to start to leave, and he goes over this little rise, and I cow call, and he bugles from behind the rise, and I challenge him. He turns and comes running back at us and runs to this point again and won't come in. And so this goes on for probably 45 minutes, and this is the biggest bodied elk I've ever seen. <laughs> and Roosevelt elk are big elk. This yeah. was a Roosevelt elk mixed with an elephant and <laughs> fed steroids for six years. I mean, his neck is as big around as the body cavity on most elk that I've seen. Wow. So we let him go over the ridge back to his cows. And I said, as soon as he gets over that ridge, we've got to make it up to that next patch of trees, which will be inside 100 yards from him. And from there, he will come in. So we do, everything's perfect. We get, you know, not, we're out in the open and exposed. So we have to be careful a couple times, but we get behind a ridge, make it up to these trees, pop over, and I look, and there's cows 80 yards from us. I'm like, all right, we are, we're good mm. to go. So Donnie's probably 40 yards behind. Uh, is it going through your mind that I'm going to need a bigger arrow? If you got one that big, if you got a bull that big, you're like, uh oh. <laughs> no, but I did talk to a guy who killed one there several years ago, and they shot it four times, and all four shots were behind the shoulder. And uh, yeah. so, yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely my biggest thought right now is we're seven hours from camp, and we are literally on the edge of a cliff that's a thousand feet down in just about every direction away from us. And if that elk goes more than 100 yards after the shot, it's going to be brutal. Like, it's going to be nasty. Nastier than it already is. So I'm like, okay, I've got to make sure that I, I put a good shot on this elk if I get an opportunity. And so we're set up here. I've got some brush in front of me. Um, can't really move anywhere and don't want to move because we're 80 yards from the cows and we're skylined. And so I don't want to expose us and take a chance busting them out of there. And so we're just kind of sitting there at mm -hmm. this point. I can't see the bull. I don't know where he is. He'd went over the knob in front of us, and I didn't know if he had pushed cows back, if he'd went to chase cows, if he'd completely left the country. And so we're kind of sitting there, and all of a sudden, right below us, he bugles. And so I peek around the brush, and he's 70 or 80 yards down there pushing a cow around. And I'm like, all right, here we go. And so I turn to Donnie, and I give him the, the cow call signal, and he cow calls, and the bull answers immediately and looks up our direction and stands there and stands there. And the cows are all locked in on us now. It's like, oh, this is worst-case scenario. And so Donnie cow calls again, and the bull screams, and I think, he needs a challenge. So I, from behind the bush there, skylined on the ridge, I scream a challenge at him, and I see him come inside out coming our direction and i can't tell if he's coming to the left or the right of the brush and so you know john's right over my shoulder and i'm like i hope he comes left because i've got 20 to 40 yards just wide open the second he clears the brush that's right in front of me i'm gonna have a broadside shot anywhere from 20 to 40 yards and then it goes quiet and it's just quiet for two minutes it seems like and i don't know where he is if he's hung up i obviously can't bugle or call at this point and so donnie gives a couple of cow calls and all of a sudden, I hear hooves on rocks, clunk, 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 oh. coming right at us, <laughs> right at the brush that we're hiding behind. 
So I'm literally swinging my bow left and then right and then left and then right because I don't know which side he's going to pop out on. And then I see antler tips mm-hmm. at about six yards on my right. So I swing the bow. My stabilizer is getting hung up in the brush as I'm swinging the bow trying to get on the elk because he's moving <laughs> broadside to us now at four yards. And he's not even paying attention oh, to us. Yeah. We're exposed. Um, I'm pretty sure I'm standing. If I might be kneeling. I don't remember if I was standing or kneeling when I shot. But uh, we're exposed there. All he's keyed in on is Donnie's cow call 40 yards behind us. And he's moving and not stopping. And I didn't want a cow call at four yards and turn him inside out. And so I swing the bow. Yeah. I find his shoulder. I put my 20-yard pin right behind his shoulder. And I touch it off. And all I hear is my bow go off and simultaneously thwack. And I see my arrow still <laughs> still sticking out of him. And I'm thinking, what? Oh. how did that not blow through at four yards? Uh, it's right in the yeah. boiler room, right behind the shoulder. And so he goes up, stops at about 30 yards and turns around and sees us standing there and bolts over the ridge. And so I didn't even hesitate. Usually I'll stay there and, you know, cow call and bugle a couple times and let things settle down. I mm-hmm. thought I've got to get another arrow in this thing. So I ran up on the ridge and you can tell he's hurt, but he's still on his feet and looking around. And so I ranged him. He's 75 yards. And so I start dialing my, my slider sight and the bull starts walking and so i range again and he's 82 so i slide it to 90 yards and cow call and cow call and finally he stops i'm like he's right at 90 yards i think i'm good so i shoot again and just a perfect shot he's quartering away right behind the ribs perfect shot and he kicks and he's about 15 yards from the edge of the cliff and he takes off towards oh, the no. edge of the cliff and i'm like no 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 and he stops broadside <laughs> Stops broadside. He's still at 90 yards. And I'm thinking, I need to shoot again. And about then, he you can tell his head's starting to wobble back and forth. And he doesn't fall down, but he goes down to his to his knees. And then he beds down. And so I'm like, okay, we got to just back out and, and give him a little time. Well, about then, his head yeah. went down sideways on the rocks, and, and he was done. So we went down there. He oh is God. 15 feet from the edge. Edge which again uh, <laughs> such such a blessing that he didn't go over but uh, the backdrop that that created for photos was absolutely jaw dropping i mean it was yeah. we we have some of the most incredible photos of a of an elk that i could you couldn't even dream of something like that. You know, the ocean in the background and these cliffs dropping off yeah. behind you and the brilliant green and the fall i mean it was just incredible so we walk up on this elk and i know he's going to be big but i wasn't prepared for for how big he looked <laughs> his, his hams when i walked up behind him you know he's laying on his side and his hams stacked together there my first thought was mm-hmm. this looks like an elephant's rear end it looks like a, a pig, <laughs> like a giant pig. They're just round hams, huge round oh, butterball hams. And his shoulder, we, we tried rolling. It took three of us just to be able to swing his head around to get him propped for pictures. Like there was no dragging him anywhere. This is where we're taking oh. pictures of him. And we got his front yeah. feet tucked under him and got him rolled up a little bit. And I, I swear... It was 42 inches from the top of his back to the bottom of his brisket. 
I've never <laughs> seen anything like it. Just massive. <laughs> First day of hunting. First day, opening day. Yeah. So, I mean, it's we're panicking a little about being seven hours from camp. And I'm like, listen, we've got 10 days here. The, the weather is cool yeah. enough. We're going to be fine. We'll just, we'll make it work with three of us. It's probably going to take three trips, but you know, we'll, we'll make it work. We aren't going to kill ourselves here. We'll take, you know, and, and come to find out you get about 450 pounds of boned out meat off of these elk. So even with three trips, you know, three trips, yeah, (laughs) three trips, three people, that's 50 pounds each. Yeah, so, plus all your gear the first trip. Well, plus we didn't realize if we're going to do that, we need 15 game bags. Because that's... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, doing the math, we're sitting right. there, okay, I've, got, I've got five game bags. So if we have 450 pounds no. of meat, that means we've got 90 pounds in each game bag, so we can't carry light loads. Fortunately, Donnie had his right. game bags, and I said, let me use your game bags when we get it packed up where we're going to pack it, then we can consolidate it again and we can get more game bags. So we start cutting and I have never in my life spent so much time cutting on an elk. It, it didn't quit. You'd cut a muscle off of that thing and there were a hundred more underneath it. It was like you'd cut one and, and 10 more would pop up. The hind end on that, the, the ham that you usually when you're boning it out, you get a ham off of it, and it's usually pretty good size. You know, it's watermelon sized. Mm-hmm. The ham on this yeah. was, it almost took two of us to carry the ham to the game bag. It was Jeez. just, I couldn't, we didn't quarter it. We didn't take the quarter <laughs> off because, number one, it was pro- literally probably 100 to 110 pounds on the hind quarter. And just. <laughs> Insane. So by by the time we get done cutting this thing up, it's nine thirty at night. It's well past dark. We uh, we yeah. push the carcass over the cliff just to keep the the meat away from the carcass in case bears happen to find the carcass. Mm-hmm. Right. There's no trees yeah. anywhere within sight, so we have all the meat just laid out on 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 top of the game bags on rocks, so it'll cool. So it's all cooled now, yeah. so we start stuffing it in game bags, and we end up with, I think there were seven or eight game bags there full of meat. And it's 9.30 at night, and I said, there's no way we can hike back safely in the no. dark and make it back to camp. So we're staying the no. night on the mountain. Keep in mind, I have a T-shirt and a puffy vest. John has about the same. We have elk meat now, so we're going to be fine if we can get a fire going. And so we hike up the hill 300 yards. We find some trees. You know, and when I say trees, I'm talking these little scrub. Right. Scrubby. (laughs) I don't know what they are, but there were some dry limbs on them. We happen to find a one person bivy tent wadded up in some rocks there. And looking at it, it looks no like way. it had got. It looks like it had gotten blown away in the wind, and it's all just ripped to pieces. But I thought we can fashion at least a little shelter over us, and get a fire going at the edge of the shelter, and and maybe stay warm through the night. So we uh, we do our best version of alone, and we build the little <laughs> shelter, and we build this rock face chimney fireplace thing to hopefully retain the heat, and we get a fire going. 
and we cook some elk backstraps on the fire and everything's good. And all this time, Donnie's, he's just, it's like he's fading. He's like, I don't have a lot of energy. I'm super yeah. tired. And he falls asleep immediately there. And I go and get more wood and, you know, we're, we're keeping this fire going, but it's just little tiny pieces of wood. And so I'm having to put wood on at least every 10 minutes. Long story short, at 3.30 in the morning, it starts raining. It's not supposed to rain at all on, on the second day. It starts raining at 3.30 in the morning. And this is after the wind's been blowing about 25 or 30 miles an hour all night. So at 3.30, uh-huh. I'm already shivering cold. Then it starts raining and I'm shivering more. And I'm putting as much wood as I can on the fire to keep it going, and it'll burn for two or three minutes, and it'll start dying out. And it got daylight about 5.30, and the second it was light enough to see, I almost left my pack there. I was like, I am too cold. I've got to start hiking. I was, I was on the verge of hypothermia. It was, you know, I wasn't thinking clear. I was shivering uncontrollably. Yeah. And I loaded my, threw my stuff in the pack, put my pack on and took off walking. I'm like, guys, I got to go. I've got to, I I can't, I'm so cold right now. I've got to find a hill and just hike up the hill to try to warm up. And so I took off and I hiked about a mile before I started, you know, I quit shivering and thought, okay, I can, I can slow down now to a normal pace and I'm going to be okay getting back to camp. And I look and John and Donnie are right behind me, which I thought, there's no way anybody's keeping up with me and as hard as I'm hiking. Well, they were in the same condition. Mm-hmm. We get to the first oh. big crevice. We're dropping down it. Donnie tweaks his knee and he's like, I, I don't know if I can hike back to camp. And so we load him up on ibuprofen and I'm like, we've got to hike back to camp. That's not even a choice. Right. So we hike back to camp. Yeah. We get back there. Uh, we made it back in, I think we got back at around 11. So 11 to 530 what's that five and a half hours something like that uh-huh. so now we realize it's not a full seven hours we can make it in in five we get back to camp donnie immediately goes in his tent doesn't even come over to to the community tent where the fire is we have a stove and a one of peaks prototype tp tents and john and i climb in there and i get a fire going and i had i'd put some dry wood in there before it started raining and i put it inside the tent and got a little fire going and not enough to dry things out but enough to kind of make us feel like we weren't going to die out in the wilderness there and then i went and climbed in my sleeping bag and i woke up and it's 8 p.m and it's dark out and john and donnie's tents are dark and so I got up and made dinner and thought, okay, we'll get up first thing in the morning and head over and start packing. So it's been raining the whole day. It's still raining. I wake up the next morning. It's still raining. And I can hear John and Donnie talking up in their tents. And it's, you know, probably 6.30, mm-hmm. 7 o'clock in the morning. And I can tell it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a different conversation. And I can't tell exactly what it is, yeah. but I can tell something's something's not right. I go up there and Donnie uh-huh. is crying. Like he's literally uh-huh. in tears crying. And he's like, I can't go. I'm so sorry, Corey. And I'm like, don't be sorry. What's, what's going on? And he's like, I can't get warm. He had his puffy coat on. He had his puffy vest on. He's in his, you know, stone glacier sleeping bag. And he's like, I just, uh-huh. I'm shaking. I have chills and I'm sweating and I feel like I'm going to throw up and, 
all this stuff. And I'm thinking, oh, I've heard of COVID, you know, like you feel good for a few days and then it comes back and hits you with a vengeance and we're not in a good place for anything like that. And so anyway, John's like, we can't leave him here like this. And I said, we've got to go pack. What are we going to do? And so Donnie's not feeling good. Um, We end up spending the whole day in camp and Donnie is like, diarrhea throwing up uh, fever chills sweats everything he's about ready to push the sos button on the in reach and we're like just take take more tylenol two hours later like take more ibuprofen you know and we just don't know what to do other than sit there and watch and make sure he doesn't truly take a turn for the worse and so I pack all my stuff up and I'm like, hey, I've got to, I've got to head over and at least get a camp set up somewhere close to there. And at this point, you know, John's like, it's going to be four hours to get over there. Let's just, we'll get up early in the morning. And if Donnie's still not good, I'll figure out what to do with him and you can go. We get up the next morning, Donnie's like, I'm, I'm still not good, but I'm doing a little better. He's like, I'm in pain everywhere and you know, still getting chills and fevers. And so he's, he said, I don't want to be left alone here, but I know you guys have to go pack elk, so go get it done. So John and I load up our camp yeah. in the rain, head over, set up a new camp in the rain. And our plan is to pack the elk, shuttle it to that camp, and then figure out a route to get it down to the lake from there. And we spend all day shuttling the elk back to camp. And our plan, we found an avalanche chute that would take us down there. So the next day we get up and we're on like day five or something here next day we get up and we load up uh the lightest loads that we can which are probably and we made it in two trips so john and i got the elk uh in two trips with two people back to this point and this was the the easier part of the pack for sure the longer part but the the less steep part now we have the straight up and down part to contend with. And we start down this avalanche chute. And I mentioned at the beginning, uh, we're on, we're in full crampons, um, rain gear, gaiters, it's pouring rain. And as I start down this avalanche chute, I make it about 30 yards and my crampons lose bite and feet come out from under me. And I've got probably 70 pounds of elk meat on my back. And, Gravity's one thing. Seventy pounds on your back with gravity. I was I was gaining speed. There was no maybe I can counter, you know, with some friction of my feet digging in, I can counter gravity. Now I have I have weight pushing me. So I get stopped and uh my legs are jello. I mean, just from the adrenaline from all of that. And we go another two hundred yards and John says, I don't I don't think we can safely go any farther down. It's just it's getting too steep. And there's trees to hold on to, so we're holding on to trees, lowering ourselves down. We go another 200 yards, and I take off my pack, and I walk down the hill looking to see if there's any path. And I'm like, there's no path, and I can't see trees below the trees 50 yards in front of us, which means it just drops off even more. Right. So we make the decision. We have to turn around and go back up this for safety reasons. We we can't go down. So with the elk loaded on our back, we climb back up this avalanche chute for 500 yards go back to camp and from camp we have to climb another five or six hundred feet in elevation that we had dropped to get to camp now we have to go up to go across the flat to get to the next ridge oh no so we shuttle meet across from camp to another point 
And at this point, it is 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And we don't know what the ridge is like that's going to take us down over here. It doesn't look as steep, but we make the decision. We've got to go. We've got we've got to just get this done. We don't know. You know, Donnie had messaged us that I'm starting to feel a little better, but still not good. But my finger's off the SOS button for now. So we pack down. We navigate game trails. We get to the bottom. It's a bog. We go across the bog. We finally make it to the lake. We drop the first load of meat. Whoa. And then we start back up, and my quads are on fire. Now, keep in mind, I have spent the summer training for this hunt. Like, I haven't trained my legs before. I knew it was going to be brutal. I knew that it was going to be heavy packs. It was going to be steep. And I'm holding out okay. I mean, my legs are getting shaky. My calves are starting to feel some stress. My quads are pretty hammered. We make it back up to the, the... load of meat sitting there in the trees and john says i smelled something coming up the hill that didn't smell right and i smell his pack i'm like oh no something something doesn't smell right on your pack so i open up a bag of this meat and it's been in the rain for four days i mean just absolute downpour there's no way to keep it dry and of course you know it's been plenty cool enough it hasn't been above 52 degrees i don't think for the whole time and i open up a bag and it's like it doesn't smell like spoiled meat but it doesn't smell quite right like it just i don't know how to explain it it just didn't smell quite right mm-hmm. so i opened up uh, another game bag and i'm like this one smells fine you know there's i'm not concerned about it but the one there was definitely some concern so i thought you know do we do we leave some of the meat because it doesn't smell good it's obviously going to save us a load going down you know all these thighs we're we're day six here in the mountains it hasn't quit raining since opening day since first 24 hours on the on the island it has not quit raining every bit of gear that i have you guys are shuttling you're you're shuttling all this in a town in a downpour then absolute downpour when we shuttled the night before Uh, the wind the wind was blowing 40 miles an hour the rain was hitting the side of my hood on my rain jacket and it sounded like firecrackers going off in my ear, like just just the rain pelting the side of it. And every uh, once in a while, a raindrop would hit direct over my ear, and it would sound like a 357 going off in my ear. My ear would just start ringing. Uh, that's how hard the wind was blowing the rain sideways. Uh, I'm leaving out a lot of a lot of details here. For the last yeah. three days, I'm putting on wet gear every morning. It won't dry out. I have on base layer bottoms that I pull on, that I wring out, literally wring out in the morning to get water out of them and then pull them on wet and then put my rain gear on over them. Uh, gloves, I'm wringing out wow. my gloves, putting them on, and every 15 minutes I'm stopping and taking them off and wringing them out. And if we stop hiking, I start shivering. Like you can't stop hiking, you can't stop moving. So there's no getting injured, there is no stopping to eat. Um, if we stop right. to pump water for five minutes, I'm shivering to the point where it's like, I got to go. And I get up and hike as hard as I can to warm back up. So we're here at the last load at the tree. Oh, it is. I'm, I'm getting nervous hearing this story. Yeah. It's 515. It gets dark I, at about eight. We've got yeah. four hours of, of down and back up best case. And I'm contemplating, we lighten our load and throw some of this meat out. It's, it doesn't smell right. And 
it would have been easy to do. I mean, no one would have questioned it. We wouldn't mm-hmm. even have to tell the story. But I thought, you know what? We've packed it this far. I don't want to ever have a question about it. We're packing it all out. And so we put the last mm-hmm. load on, packed it out, got it hung down at the lake, and started back up. And it gets dark, but we're fine. I didn't have a headlamp. John had a headlamp. Um, anyway, we make it back to our... You didn't, our, you di- you, you didn't have a headlamp. I didn't have a headlamp. And that was... was that was a purposeful decision that morning when we left, and I thought there's no way we're going to pack till dark tonight. We've got, you know, we can take two loads down oh. this avalanche chute, but when we had to go the other way, I just, I mean, I was trying to lighten my load as much as I could. I took water and enough food for the day, and that was literally all I took extra other than the meat. And <laughs> so we get back to camp, obviously exhausted. But knowing, okay, we've got all the meat at the lake. So I we radio Donnie, or not radio, uh, in reach Donnie, and say, hey, yeah. get a hold of the transport. Let them know that we've got the meat at the lake. They can come pick it up anytime. And what are you thinking? And Donnie responded and said, I'm done. I can't hunt. So he said, okay, let them know that we can be out of here by tomorrow afternoon or evening if they can pick us up. We'll pack up our camp. We'll head over to Donnie's camp in the morning. We should be able to get there by 11 if we leave early enough. Two trips back and forth down to the lake. We should be ready for pickup by 3 o'clock. So Donnie says, okay. So we get up the next morning, and the weather breaks, and we have just this beautiful view of the lake before below us. Um, just incredible. We're able to take our tents down. It's the first time it's quit raining in five days now. And... Mm-hmm. Then it starts raining again a little bit, but it uh, it didn't didn't completely fog in. Fog's moving in and out, so we start packing back over towards Donnie. And obviously, our legs are fried at this point from hiking in wet base layers. I am chafed from my knees to my waist. My waistline feels oh, no. like somebody's taken a belt sander to the back, you know, from that heavy weight on the yeah. back, and then wet Great. clothes underneath it. It just feels raw. Mm-hmm. The tops of my toes are rubbed raw. Like they are, they're scabbed over, mm-hmm. like almost becoming infected on the top of my toes. Um, I have an ingrown toenail on my big toe, which hurts every time I step down. <laughs> I, I've consolidated this into about an hour here, but this has gone on for five days. And oh, so we get back to Donnie's mm-hmm. camp. It's, uh, it's 11.10 a.m., and I said, what's the situation with the transport? And he's like, oh, I haven't checked. Let me see. And Donnie's, Donnie comes out of his tent. He has everything packed up. And he's like, I'm feeling better. I'm still getting cramps in my side every 30 minutes or so. But chills are, you know, an hour apart. And they're starting, you know, I have no energy. My legs are shaky. But I'm ready to get out of here. So everything's packed up and, and we can start going. He checks his inReach. And the transport says, we have a window. We're going to fly in to pick up your meat. We can pick you up on the same trip. If we don't pick you up, we won't be able to get back in for the next three days based on the weather we're seeing. Hmm. That window is at 1230 pickup. It's 1121. We have an hour and 10 minutes to be at the lake. We're planning on four hours because it's an hour and a half down empty. Yeah. An hour and a half back up empty. An hour and a half back down empty. And now we're looking at, we have an hour and 10 minutes to be at the lake or they're going to leave us. 
We load everything, our entire camp, on our back. So 90 pounds, probably. No. And we've got some pretty steep steep chutes and muddy hillsides where all you can hold on to are trees to keep from sliding down. And I'm, I'm pushing pretty hard. Donnie and John, I told John, hey, just stay with Donnie. If one of us can get to the lake, I'm sure we can convince them to wait until we all get there. They aren't going to leave us, I hope. But I'm also thinking there's a weather window here, and that pilot is not going to take a chance. He's going to make it out safely, right. and he's going to say, guys, I have to go now. I don't care if you're five minutes away. I don't have five minutes. I have to go. So I'm halfway mm-hmm. down the mountain. I've made it through the steep stuff, and I hear a plane land at the lake. And I didn't even look at what time it was. I'm like, I've got to go. So I take off jogging, military ruck jogging down through this tundra, wet, slimy grass hillside to try to make it to the lake. And I hear him kind of trolling around the edge of the lake looking for us. And I'm about 400 yards away from the lake at this point. And I'm not coming out at our pickup point. I'm just, I want to get to the lake. I'm going straight to the closest shoreline of the lake. Yeah. And I get to the the edge of the lake, and he's at our pickup point, and he's pulling out of the pickup point, and I'm 60 yards away. And it looks like he might see me. You know, he's, he's perpendicular to me. And so I'm just kind of standing there waving, and all of a sudden he turns straight away from me. And you can't see out the back of a float oh, no. plane when you're moving straight away. Right. And that's the direction no. he has to go to take off. And he starts going along that shoreline. I'm like, okay, at least I have a chance. So I pull out anything of color out of my pack, a red dry bag, a yellow dry bag, and I'm waving them. Well, about then, John and Donnie get down to the edge of the shore, and I look at the, I look at my watch. It's 1210. We've made it before the 1230. I mean, it took me, I made it down there in 40 uh, minutes. And so I'm thinking, okay. Holy crap. Oh, he can't leave us. So he's actually over picking up the meat at this point. He'd come to look for us first, and whenever we get the meat, and then he makes another circle back around, finds us. We get on the plane. He, uh, It's crazy trying to take off because the wind's coming from the wrong direction. We have to take off basically sideways and bank into the wind to get lift. We get lift, <laughs> and my heart is just like, you know, all of the last five, six days, the adrenaline of running to the lake and thinking we were going to get left – and uh, it all just hit, and I'm like, just uh, all the energy drained out of me. Uh, we uh, tried making it through a pass and couldn't make it through the pass because of the weather. So we had to turn around and go around a peninsula and fly underneath all the clouds down low all the way back. But we made it back. We uh, got in there, and uh, we flights got canceled for flying out of the main airport there, and all our baggage got lost on the way back, and a whole bunch of other ordeals. But that was uh, that was my Alaska elk hunt adventure in a nutshell. Oh my gosh, Corey! That 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 is beyond <laughs> beyond uh, even anything I could have imagined. Oh yeah, That's, the trans transport in that country. Yeah, and it, I was just gonna say the transporter when he picked us up said you're the first group I've picked up on on this island that's been smiling after the hunt. Um, I don't know if we're smiling in delirium or, you know, at one point I made the quote to John. I said, to, to those who feel life is a tragedy and to those who think a comedy. 
And so, you know, the whole time we're just trying to make light of everything. I'm like, all we can do is laugh here. And there was a point where I, when we were coming up, back up that chute with the weight on our back, with the meat on our back, because we couldn't get down safely, I said, I think this might have just turned from a, a comedy to a tragedy. And, uh, you know, but we, we kept good spirits about it. And John is an absolute mm-hmm. trooper. To, I mean, he's a camera guy. He, he probably could have said, I'm not carrying very much weight. And he took every bit as much weight right. as I did. Um, you know, two of us, was, wow. we were shorthanded, but, uh, but we got it done. Yeah. But uh, I think we were the first elk that the transporter has, has taken off of the island in his plane. Uh, success rates are like 2%. Had we not had that one day of, of absolute stunning clear weather, uh, both for flying in and seeing the elk as well as to hunt them in, I really don't think we would have seen an elk on that trip, let alone killed one. Uh, coupled with, uh, we did 22 miles in the last 48 hours of packing, we did 22 miles. Uh, the one day was 11 miles in 11 hours. And it was 6,500 feet of elevation gain, or 6,200 feet of elevation gain, and 6,500 feet of elevation drop during that 11 hours. Uh, the last 48 hours, we did 22 miles with with elk or either elk or camp on our backs. Um, in driving rain, in absolute miserable straight up and down conditions where crampons were breaking loose. Uh, I snapped my trekking pole in half. I bent the other one. Uh, trekking poles looked like we had been sword fighting with them the whole week. They were just mangled. And... <laughs> so anyway, you ask if I uh, uh, if it was an experience that I would do again uh, at any time during the hunt, from the time that we killed the elk until we got flown off of there, I would have said absolutely not. Uh, being back home for a couple of days now. Uh, I would say absolutely not. I, 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 I don't, I don't see a situation where I would ever want to go back and I would strongly try to talk anyone who is interested in going on it out of it because of the, the lack of safety. Yeah. yeah I mean, it really was a dangerous yeah. hunt. It wasn't a fun hunt. Yes. Calling in the elk and shooting the elk was fun. That was incredible. The scenery, the one day that we could see it was breathtaking, uh, but the the logistics of everything it it wasn't uh, it wasn't yeah. a lot of fun. Yeah, I, I I can't even imagine what you guys went through, Corey. I you know when I've done it twice, we've shot Sitka blacktail. Well, one guy can carry a whole sick of blacktail if you <laughs> him bone it out. And yeah, you got your camp, you got everything. And the last time we were up there, we got the same thing when we uh, did the message to the transporter. And they're like, can you guys be down at the beach in four hours? No. Well, then you're going to be there for four days because yep. our weather window, we can't get in okay <laughs> and <laughs> but it was nowhere near the loads that you guys had and we didn't have one guy who was on a deathbed and this was a trail we had traveled in the hunt before two years prior and we traveled we well not trail 
as my buddy Jim Bagetail, the big bearded guy who's on some of our content, he lives up there on Prince of Wales Island. He says, there aren't trails here. There are just routes. <laughs> you take exactly. the best route. They're not trails. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and uh, so at least we had that to our advantage. And I, as you're telling this story, you know, Norman McLean, the guy who wrote A River Runs Through It, he, he, there's a quote attributed to him that says something to the effect of, uh, you know, we were too young or we were too whatever to know that we owed the world the tragedy. <laughs> you, you guys walked a razor thin wire of a high line without a net. As far as a tragedy, when you're talking about the hypothermia, the, you know, Donnie getting sick, the, you know, and, you know, the, the part that freaks me out is thinking about you guys dropping that 500 yards down that avalanche chute and then having to go back out of there. Yeah. Sometimes you can't get back out of there. Yeah. Or you keep thinking, well, I just got to get, I just got to get past this little piece. And every little piece you think you got to get past is just worse than what you just went through. Yep. And all of a sudden you're cliffed out. And you don't want to turn around. I mean, the the mental dilemma that I went through standing there on the mountain trying to decide what to do was agonizing. I mean, it really, I knew that if we backed out at that point, we had to turn around and go back up 500 yards of, you know, 800 feet in elevation straight up with 75 pounds on our back. And with crampons on, knowing that we're going to be slipping and sliding with each step that we take, but also knowing that if I continue down any farther, it, we don't know what it is. And we can hear waterfall water down below. We can, you know, can't see the trees. We know there's some kind of a drop, whether there's any kind of a navigable route around it or not. Uh, we just had to make the, the best decision was to turn around and go back up. And when we got to the top, my legs were fried. I mean, we just weren't planning on packing that much yeah. weight uphill. And uh, it was it was rough. And just the, the mental drain of everything being fogged in, of not being able to see more than 80 yards for the last three or four days, everything's soaking wet. You climb in your sleeping bag at night, you're clammy, wet, uh, all the gear. My boots had standing water inside them when I'd put them on in the morning, uh, gators didn't even help at that point. You know, rain gear didn't even help at that point. It was just, and, and then I can't, you can't describe what it's like to have weight on your back and to have crampons slip out from under you and you hit the wet grass and start sliding at an immediate high speed. Uh, uh, and you're looking down going, okay, there's a tree there. I'm going to try to grab that tree when I go, go by it. I'm trying to dig my heels in. I can't get my heels <laughs> to take, you know, what's coming 20 yards below uh, that. I can't even see through that brush. When I break through that brush, who knows what's, what's below that. Uh, yeah, it was just, it was, you know, I've, I've done some dumb things. I've done some things that I look back on and kind of, you know, I don't want to close my eyes and, and envision them because it makes me kind of shudder to think about, uh, this whole trip was one yeah. of those things that it's just like, I never felt like I was in danger of dying, but there were enough things that if one thing would have went wrong, it would have, you know, if I would have broken ankle, I wouldn't have survived three hours because of the right. hypothermic conditions. I was soaking wet. You think the temperature is 50 degrees, 50 degrees is comfortable if you're dry. When you're soaking wet and there's a 20 mile an hour yeah. wind, 50 degrees will kill you in a matter of hours. 
And just, you know, little things like that, that it's like, if we tweak our knee here, I can't hike half, I can't hike hard enough to stay warm enough, you know, and, and then Donnie come to find out he had pumped water for me at one point, right before he had gotten really sick with his filter and I'd taken Mm -hmm. a drink of it and it tasted like pond water mud. And I dumped it out immediately and went and got my filter and filtered my own water. And my water tasted like spring water after it had gone through the filter. And so I got thinking, <laughs> I wonder if he got Giardia or something, you know, just with the chills and the fever yeah. and the intense stomach pains. Well, the last night when he was in his tent, he, uh, he peed out a couple kidney stones and some blood. Oh, no. So we think that's what it was. He just actually texted me this morning, went to the urologist, and he still has a couple kidney stones and a little bit of infection, but nothing they're worried about. So it probably was some infection, and the pain was from the kidney stones. The infection Mm -hmm. was the the fever and the chills and all of that. Um, But yeah, I mean, just (laughs) even from Donnie's perspective, he could give you a whole whole nother story about being hundreds of miles from anywhere on an island. We're the only people on the entire island uh, in a tent with 40-mile-an-hour winds threatening to blow the tent down, and you're sick and don't know if you have COVID or if you have Giardia or if you're going to live and whether or not to push the the SOS button on the inReach. And so. Wow. There were there were a couple of, of locals up there that were like, Man, you you showing this hunt and videoing it and everything is just gonna ruin the hunt. People are gonna you know, it's gonna ruin the draw odds and people are gonna be putting in for it. And I really hope not for not for their sake, not for the sake of, of keeping draw odds decent, for the sake of sanity. This is a one yeah. percent hunt. I mean, this is this is a hunt, and I'm not saying I'm in the one percent. I'm saying only 1% of bow hunters should consider doing this hunt because it is that challenging. The success rates are so low. Uh, it It's not fun. It's not a pleasant yeah. experience. Well, this, uh, uh, and this is where, you know, I think of you and Donnie and John, you, you guys are a plus we'll call it backwoodsmen, mountain people. You, you, you know, if you take the hunting community, there's going to be that top one or two percent that it's like, all right, they'll be okay. And you guys are in that one or two percent. You worry about what if someone who just it has way more enthusiasm than they do experience and good judgment got in some of those predicaments. Yep, and the outcome this is for people who don't understand southeast alaska this isn't like donnie says you know he's about ready to hit the sos button and they'll try to come and get you but that doesn't mean they can the only option that we would have had and it may not have even worked out if he hit the sos button it's coast guard coming to get you it's not a transporter it's not a helicopter it is the coast guard with a helicopter, with a cable, coming and lowering the cable mm-hmm. and extracting you if if right. they can get if there. If they can. Yep. Right. And a lot of times, they're, they're under no-fly conditions. Yeah. It's like flying through soup. 
Yep. The commercial <laughs> plane, the commercial <laughs> plane that was supposed to fly us out the next day could not land at the commercial mm-hmm. airport because of the winds. They had to divert and yeah. it was, you know, four hours or whatever later before the winds died down enough that they could come and land a plane to take us to Seattle. You know, I mean, we're not talking landing mm-hmm. at a lake where you're flying into a box canyon and one little bobble in the wind can mm-hmm. cause disaster. It's, uh, yeah, it's just there There are no options. You're out there and you have to be yeah. mentally okay with not only I might get hurt and be stuck here for four days before somebody can come and get me, but, you know, you have to be okay with being out there alone and and sitting in a tent like Donnie did, you know, for that long being sick, your mind isn't right anyway. And yeah, it's just, uh, th- th- those are under good normal conditions. Something goes wrong and it's, right. it, uh, it can get bad really quickly. Right. Oh man. Uh, I don't know if my blood pressure will drop today after hearing that story. And I just, all I did was I, I heard it. <laughs> I didn't. Uh, we're oh, able to laugh about mercy. it now. And, and uh, we're very much looking forward to hunting elk in Idaho next week at 8,000 feet in elevation from a base camp. And yeah. it'll uh, <laughs> be more normal, a, a more normal experience. Yeah. Well, so, well there's how, nothing I'm going to do to do this year, Corey, that's even going to be the equivalent of your airplane flight out to the lake <laughs> <laughs> as far as adventure. Uh, <laughs> well, what is, a, what is your you plan? Uh, I, I want to hear about your hunt. Well, well, I'm right now I'm sitting here with aloe all over my face trying to recover from the sunburn of my first experience, my first expedition here in Montana, uh, in the nineties, uh, hot, 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 uh, went out to central Montana and the good news was, you know, I, I've done this video that. I'm trying to get finalized for your University of Elk Hunting course called Migratory and Non-Migratory Elk. And so I'm telling my crew, look, these are non-migratory elk. It's a dry year. Here's where they're going to be concentrated. Because in non-migratory elk disperse horizontally, right? Our migratory elk disperse vertically. So I'm like, all right, here's what I know about this place. I've been out there three times this summer. This is these elk can't be just randomly dispersed because it's just too dry. There's not enough forage for them. So I think they're all going to be concentrated right here. There's some north facing slopes that don't get cooked as bad, blah, 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 blah. Well, we take the long five hour drive to get out there, six hour drive, whatever, load up the llamas, make this long trek in there. And at the, at the, uh, at the, the, the trailhead, there's trailers and tents and it's looks like a zoo. And the guys are looking at me like, Oh, this is going to be crowded. I'm like, yeah, but we got llamas. So we go way in there and we got the place to ourselves just before the sun goes down. We hear some elk and we look and there's a herd of, I have no idea how many the next day when I counted what the elk I could see, I counted 160 in this. Wow. And so Michael, uh, who is one of my camera guys, but he's also got the tag. He is just 
bouncing around, man. He's like, oh, look at this. No one else is in here, but man, look at the size of that. It's, I'm like, Phew. at least we found some milk. I'm, I'm going to check that off as, you know, uh, all right, we know where they're at. So get up next day. Uh, and we just had weird wind, hard to hunt them with the winds that we had. So we're staying on the periphery as these elk are feeding and moving to their beds. And it's really hard to stay on the periphery of a herd of 160 to however many elk are really there. Yeah. And try not get, try not get winded, especially when the thermals are changing. And so that day, uh, we did have an encounter, uh, with a raghorn within range, uh, but there's some brush in the, in the way. So Michael passed the shot. Uh, and then the elk repeat their pattern that evening and we're just following along, waiting for a chance. And there's a couple big old boys in there, three, probably three or four. One of them's just really big <laughs> where it's like, you'd shoot that one with a rifle and be super excited. You wouldn't, you wouldn't even say I got a shop around. I'll, I'll shoot that one first five minutes of season. Uh, but again, we, we really didn't have a way to get in on them. They, they figured out how to be in these really open areas in these large groups. And they got, you know, 30 or 40 of them standing on the edge. And you try to make a call to a group of elk that big. And they just all kind of look at you like, huh. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what was that? You think we're going to be impressed with that? So, then the second day uh, in the morning, and we had run into some other hunters. Some of the hunters were hiking in and day hiking back to where we were at. Second day, second morning, we're into them again, following them. And now, unfortunately, they go right towards the trailhead where I know they're going to, every little drainage, they're going to run into hunters. And uh, there's about a, 80% chance the hunters bump them back to where the direction we were at. And there's about a 20% chance that they bump them completely out of the unit. Well, I saw the elk cross the river heading up the other side. I'm like, oh no, this is not good. So that day I could have shot a couple calves, but I didn't think that was what I wanted to do on day two. Day three, we with all the elk blown out of there, even as far in as we were, we only saw four elk on day three. Uh, day four, Michael wakes up and he's messing with his bow and he's like, I think I got some sand or something in this, <laughs> in this rest. He said, it's not dropping down the way I think it should. I'm like, let me see that. I've, I've seen hundreds of these. That never happened. I'm like, well, there is something stuck in there. So I'm like, do this shoot an arrow through it and it'll plunge down and maybe it'll clear it. Okay. <laughs> he shoots it and breaks the, the fork, the Y, the forks that make the Y they break <laughs> off. That's how, that's how bad we got it bound up. Uh, so, yeah. So I was like, well, what do we do now? We didn't, we didn't have, none of us had hypothermia. We had the exact opposite. We're all sunburned and sweating. The llamas will drink out of the water or out of the river, but the river is so dirty and muddy at the flats where we camp that uh, it's plugging our water filters. So we're like, all right, do we want to hike 
back to the truck and get our extra water or do we just want to go back to bozeman for a day get michael's rest fixed thanks to an accountant's version of how you fix things you know <laughs> put more need a Duck bigger tape. hammer right <laughs> uh, yeah so uh so we came back and uh today is our day back in town and then tomorrow we're heading out again uh, but this time we're going out up in the mountains. Uh, looks like we're getting a cold, a cooler front here around Bozeman. Yeah. So we're going to go up in the mountains. We already have a film permit. Um, so we're going to go up and do that. So cool. Nothing nearly as exciting as you had, Corey. But <laughs> we got a lot of footage of a lot of elk, if that counts for anything. That is cool, but, too. Sure. Yeah. yeah. So, I know it was fun to run into a lot of the hunters out there. Uh, there's some really nice guys we ran into um, the first day. We're watching a group, and they're watching a smaller group. And one group, one of the groups of hunters saw us, and they came down. They're like, hey, we're going to go after these elk, but we don't want to mess you up. And I'm like, you go go after whatever you want, man. Don't Don't worry about us. I really appreciate it. I'm like. I don't see, if you're going that way, we'll go over here. And then it dawned on all of us that, hey, we're talking about two different groups of elk. So they went after their group. But it was really nice to run into some people who had that concern about what their plan might affect other hunters. Because they saw that we were set up above these elk had been for quite a while and it's not that often that in today's world that someone's that considerate and wants to come and say hey if we do this are we going to mess you up you know a lot of people are like i'm going in there out with you yeah exactly <laughs> so that's cool and uh we had a blast it's a it's an amazing landscape that i've spent a lot of time in and my goal with that was one hopefully we'd kill an elk not just have some encounters but kill one uh and that we wouldn't get sunburned but mostly i wanted michael and then dale who was the full-time camera guy on this trip uh just to see the landscape see how cool it is and hopefully they'll eventually build the passion for it like i've had um and you know someday they'll put me in the pine box it'll be up to those guys to be the the voice and the protector of of places like that so yeah we'll see <laughs> but I, I here's the other thing Corey. rumor has it that the grouse crop this year is excellent in where we're going the next four days <laughs> so we got four days behind us now we're going to pivot and the audience is going to get to see a completely different type of hunting, right? Migratory elk that disperse horizontally or vertically uh, in dark timber. And this is the other thing out there. You know, it's so open that if you make a call, and we are watching some other guys trying to call some elk, they just stand there and look. They're like, yeah. I can see for a mile, and I don't see you. Yep, I can see I'm where the call's coming there. from, and I don't see an elk, so not moving. Yeah, like and calling so, elk so out they just that stand there. That's yeah, tough. Yeah. I, I think people are going to, you know, some people are going to watch us and say, why aren't they calling? Why why aren't they pulling them in? Well, <laughs> I may as well just stand up and wave my hands as to try that when they can see for, and I'm not kidding when I say in a lot of instances they can see over a mile. Uh, and it's just broken terrain. But when we go up, you know, in the mountains, we're going to be calling like crazy because it's just thick, nasty, you know, 
they, they aren't going to see you until they get really, really close. So it's a completely different type of hunting. We've been rehearsing today what, what our uh, tactics are going to be. And hopefully the audience will, will get to see something that's, you know, a, a 180 almost from what we did the first four days. So, but there are also a lot of grouse. So <laughs> ho- hopefully I can find some of those. I know what you're thinking. You're like, Rain. Oh, my goodness. You know, I, yep. I, 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 I don't really need you to do grouse hunting. You know? <laughs> this isn't so. destination grouse. No, <laughs> but, but I mean, you know, something, so, something, that, something needs to get cooked over a fire. So if it's a grouse, that's okay mm-hmm. too. Yeah. And, uh, you know, out in central Montana, you don't got to worry about grizzly bears and all that stuff where yeah. now, <clears throat> now we're going into like grizzly bear central and uh, I hate to even talk about it because I just know that someday I'm going to have an encounter and people are going to be like, Newberg, you not had what do you expect you know you go do that stuff your your, your day's coming all right <laughs> <laughs> but uh, i know there are out there so i gotta go yeah so, uh, it's just uh, one of those things that yeah there's there's danger there there's concern there but i think if you're if you're smart and you understand the the danger and do everything you can to to mitigate it chances are pretty low and you know you can yeah. be walking across the street to grab a donut and a five dollar latte and get hit by a <laughs> by a moped and, yeah. i mean who knows right. just, yeah I'd, I'd much rather be hunting elk and grizzly country than one of the other 99 yeah. ways well, that we could go just as easily yeah, the the whole grizzly country thing that that creates a bit of a sanctuary in a larger sense. These places that will be hunting pressure is always lower, just because a lot of people don't want to mess with it, and I get that. But I just can't. It's like you know, there's some things that just call to you, and it's irresistible. You just have to go do it. Yeah. And this is one of those places. And uh, I accept the risks. I try to mitigate them and keep my fingers crossed. So, But none of that is ever going to compare, Corey, with your story. That That is epic. That is, and the fact that John is there capturing as much of this as he feasibly can while not sliding off the cliff face <laughs> and ruining his camera gear this is one for the ages yeah we uh i mean obviously the hunt we got some incredible footage of the bull when he came out and put on the show the first time the you know the shot at four yards john right over my shoulder even the second shot he got it uh some incredible photos and then you know the packing process he uh captured it and i think he's going to be able to put together some pretty cool content from it for sure just you know stuff you don't get to see you don't get to see people packing an elk across a glacier with the wind blowing 40 miles an hour and rain pelting them in the side of the face and you know it's not that anybody really wants to see that or experience it but it'll be a it'll be a new experience to to be able to share that kind of content for sure yeah well i'm I'm just <laughs> so thankful you guys got home in one piece. So I got to ask this though, Corey. 
I, you sent me a picture of you and this bull. Have you posted that on face or on uh, Instagram yet? Not that picture, but I'm just getting ready to today. So okay, yeah, I've uh, I've kind of okay. done some teaser stuff so, on there, and we've uh, kind of been building okay. up to it. You look like one of the Lilliputians in Gulliver's Travels <laughs> next to this monstrous bull body size, and you're not a small guy. I'm like, okay, this trick photography we got here, that bull that big, Corey leaves that much weight and shrink that much. What's, I, I'm going with that bull is just that big. What's really sad is we couldn't prop the bull up to properly show how big he was. Like in photos, the photos don't do justice. I do. We have one picture of the carcass there you know we're basically cutting the rest of the meat off of one side of the carcass and you don't even get mm-hmm. to see the quarters or anything but just the rib cage and the backbone there uh, that show us kind of knelt down next to it put it into a little bit better perspective uh, but yeah it's just you, I can't even you, you can't explain it people say they're as big as a moose it's bigger yeah. than a moose it's built different than a moose <laughs> a moose is long and skinny and yeah they have big hind quarters. I mean, they have huge front shoulders too. This elk had mm-hmm. front shoulders every bit as big, like in length, but the mass of them was mm-hmm. double what a moose, you know, it just, they're, I don't know. The neck on it was like a 50 gallon barrel, just round the whole way from the back <laughs> of its ears to where it attached to its shoulders. It was just round the whole way. So after you were hauling that out, were you thinking, I should have shot a spike. <laughs> <laughs> we made mention come after we were, you know, hiking out the next morning before we realized Donnie wasn't going to be able to participate anymore. We told him, hey, uh, yeah, shoot the first spike you can see or anything because we aren't going to be able to carry two of these elk out. But, yeah, it's definitely, oh, I, I think, mercy. going into that hunt with two tags is a is a stretch just physically to be able to do yeah. it. Uh, and then they just, those elk do not live. And I don't know if it's because of the access to those couple of points that they don't live near the access points or if it just happens to be where they live and there's no access mm-hmm. to it. But he was literally in a position that was the farthest point from anything anywhere. We talked about packing him out to the ocean. I mean, packing him down the ridge really? all the way to the ocean as being an easier option than than where we ended up going. Uh, and it was probably <sighs> sixes. You know, I mean, it probably was was a toss-up to which one would have been easiest hmm. or less wow. hard. <laughs> I, I can't even wait to see your uh, equipment list for that. Yeah. You know what? you think we're the absolute lifesavers and you know if if you really want to sort out how well your gear packages work it's hunts like that that push it even beyond what normal limits would be yeah that's what i told bryce at, at peak you know we at peaks we uh we use their prototype tp and and a stove and then obviously the gators and the the uh, trekking poles and i said i found the ideal testing ground for trekking poles because i've i've used trekking poles for mm-hmm. years and i've bent 
I've bent a couple trekking poles, you know, just down at the tip. You pry them in between a couple logs. You're going downhill yeah. and jump over a log, and all your weight goes on it, and it bends them a little bit. Um, I, I honestly left the trekking poles in a garbage can in Alaska because there was nothing left out <laughs> of them. And that's not saying anything about the trekking poles. The trekking poles wow. did their job. It was literally, it was right. that abusive on them that yeah, you, every, everywhere mm-hmm. you stick them, they sink in a foot. Mm-hmm. It's just the ground underneath there right. is so soft. But then once you get down that foot, it's in rocks. And so you sink them down a foot and then they're right. stuck in the rocks. So you're continually prying, trying to pull them out of the ground. You're, if you're putting weight on them going forward, they're sinking down and then they're stuck in the rocks. You're putting that weight on them. And I mean, it literally looked right. like we just sat All there right. and sword fought each other for a week with our trekking poles. They were bent in places trekking poles shouldn't bend and... But yeah, and coming down off that stuff, the every bit of it, it might look like it's green, but there's some sort of threatening rock, crevasse, crack, slippery, whatever, oh, yeah. underneath everything. Yep. And you get your trekking poles wedged in that stuff. I don't know how many pairs of trekking poles I've broke in Alaska, in yep. southeast Alaska. Uh, don't take aluminum. Well, uh, the carbon's even worse because, you know, it'll crack on everything it hits. And so, yeah, there's not a uh, a good answer. Yeah, yeah aluminum just bends. I in fact, okay. I, I bent the one and John said, do you want to just try bending it back? And I said, my experience with bending trekking poles is they bend naturally on their own. Yeah. They're way stronger. And as soon as you try to bend them back, they're going to crease and they'll just snap. and Break. Yep. Yep. No, it's... Oh, Corey, 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 what are we going to do with you, man? I, I, I hope this is like you've reached the apex of your adventure elk hunting now. You can throttle it back a little bit after this. I don't know how I could throttle it forward from that. It's, I, talk, <laughs> I, I mean, really, I just, I talked to several people that said that is the hardest hunt physically in alaska uh it's the hardest elk hunt potentially in north america as far as you know just the the terrain and the success rates you know there was one elk killed last year on the hunt Mm -hmm. and you know we killed one this year and i don't know you know hopefully somebody else has some luck but i think it's around 50 percent of the people that draw the tag don't even go on the hunt just due to the, the logistics of getting there. You know, they draw the tag and have ideas, mm-hmm. and then it just doesn't work out that they can't get to the hunt. And so, yeah, it's, uh, I thought several times, gosh, hunting elk in Arizona would be ideal right now. You know, just a flat, <laughs> flat land, staying in a base camp, uh, big bulls going everywhere. You can't sleep at night. Something like that, I think yeah. uh, that might be that might be next. Oh, I hope it is for you. Well deserved. I, congratulations. I, I know uh, people listening may not understand the Corey Jacobson a personality type that accepts every challenge as a challenge. Uh, so I know that's in your DNA and how you approach <laughs> these things, and I'm. I, I'm so thankful that it worked out for you guys and that everyone got home safely with yeah. with such an amazing story. Yeah. That's just so so cool. 
Yeah, my first Roosevelt elk. You know, I've hunted them on the coast of Oregon twice and came home empty-handed both times with plenty of opportunity. Just, you know, it's that's hunting and it didn't work out, which I kick myself for some of the things I did, um, you know, in the, in the heat of those opportunities that I could have done just a little different and it would have turned out different. But I think uh, it makes it even more special to kill my first Roosevelt elk on a hunt like this and... Now I, I definitely look forward to going to the Oregon coast and having a much easier hunt. <laughs> as hard as that hunt is, it's, it's much easier. Right. Uh, <laughs> oh gosh. Well, I'm. I think we're just going to leave the audience with that story, Corey. There is nothing we're going to do on this podcast episode that is going to improve on what they just heard. Well, you could probably okay say that? that you could probably say that about every episode we've done. <laughs> we aren't going to be able to do anything <laughs> that can improve. It's, we can only go down from here. So, uh, yeah, no, no I think, I, this uh, is an this a, absolute epic story. It's, it was. Uh, I, I, can't I can't wait to share wait the to video. It on video. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, are you gonna are you gonna write about it in your University of Elk Hunting? I don't Class. know. I don't know where it would fit in because I I wouldn't encourage. Well, anyone I th- to I, th- do I it. think there should be a mod a module that says things not to do as an elk hunter. Yeah. Yep. And you could just put that. Don't apply here, and if you do apply and draw, don't go anyhow. Eat your tag. <laughs> <laughs> no, and I think that uh, hopefully through my Instagram stuff, you know, I've shared the positive stuff so far there. I'm getting ready to start sharing the the downhill slide, no pun intended, but, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it, it really isn't an elk hunt for most people to consider. And that, again, I'm not saying yeah. that I'm – you know, a better elk hunter than anybody or that I even should have considered it just having experienced it. And, you know, I've, I've spent some time in the backcountry. I've spent some time doing extreme stuff and wasn't even near, you can't be prepared for this. You just, you can't stay dry in that environment. You can't right. stay uh, warm. You can't pack enough stuff because of how heavy your pack is. You can't fathom how big these elk are. Uh, they don't, you can't shoot them close to any place where, you know, you can't go in there and say, I'm just going to hunt close to the lake and hope that an elk comes by. There's just so few elk and so yeah. few opportunities that it's, uh, you know, like I said, there's, there are probably a few people out there that if they contact me and said, Hey, what can you tell me about the hunt? Um, that they could go into it and, and have a chance of being successful and a chance of surviving. But, uh, most people I would strongly encourage this, this isn't one to try. Yeah. Well, with that, yeah. we're going to let them go. Cause I got to go home and get, and get all my gear packed. There you go. For, you get out. I, I came home. Your turn. I, I got, yeah, I got a shower. I washed my bridges. Uh, and now I got to repack some meals and we're heading out tomorrow. So I, uh, I better be ready. We got four days left to get some elk on the ground. Yeah. And we're going, I'm, I was going to say, we're going I'm, uh, I've got my money on you. Yeah. <laughs> uh oh. Hopefully, you don't send me a bill for the money you lost. <laughs> all the, all the money that people have paid to listen to this podcast, I'm putting it on you to, to be successful. 
Uh, there you go. Uh, well, great job, Corey. Thanks for sharing it with us. I uh, I hope the rest of your season has as much success without nearly the amount of adventure. <laughs> I uh, I appreciate that, and I hope so as well. All right. Take care, folks. Yep. We'll catch you next time.